On a fall afternoon, I sat down for a chat with Stefan Willer, a professor of German at Humboldt University in Berlin. We spoke together on the same campus where Hegel, the Brothers Grimm, Kierkegaard, and even Friedrich Schlegel once strolled. It was a pleasure to be able to speak to Professor Willer, who was a scholar of early German Romanticism. Professor Willer has also held guest professorships at Stanford University, University of California, Irvine, and the École des Hautes Études en Sciences Sociales in Paris. He's published on an array of topics in German studies. His early career focused heavily on German Romanticism. He's continued to work on this topic throughout his career, but he's also expanded his work into related fields such as music theory, transmission of knowledge, and translation. His current work focuses on what we might term futurology. Because Professor Willer is an expert in early German Romanticism, I wanted to discuss with him a theory which I proposed on the very first episode of The Schrift, Episode Zero, The Death of Moses and Early German Romanticism. Our conversation picks up where that episode left off two years earlier. excited to have him here. Uh, really looking forward to the conversation. So, welcome. Yeah, thank you. Great. Thanks for having me. Sure. So, there's so many fascinating areas of, of German studies. What made, it seems like you got started with with the German Romantic period. Was there something about that that particularly attracted you as opposed to other topics? Hmm. Well, when I think um, back of starting with uh, really studying German Romanticism, writing my PhD on Romantic philosophy and theories of, of language, um, also yeah, spe special scientific approaches to language, what is called Sprachwissenschaft in German, um, it was not so much about romantic poetry, but really about romantic ways of um, of, of knowing and of uh, trying to attain uh, new kinds of, of knowledge. As an American, you know, growing up in America, for me, it was it was really cool to discover. Term I didn't discover the early term romanticism until I was in grad school, mm -hmm. and my professor taught it to us. And I had actually never heard of Schlegel and uh, Novalis and all these major figures. Yeah. And um, as someone who like, loves literature and philosophy, I was a bit shocked that I went so long without discovering these guys mm -hmm. and, and women. And I'm just curious, I almost feel like it's almost uh, tragic that they're not so well known outside of Germany. Or maybe you disagree, but are you surprised by that, that they're that they're not so that the early German romantics are sort of not so famous in the rest of the world. Hmm. I think there is an important uh, part of the reception in France. So in 
in what in English is called French theory. <laughs> so I think for that, uh, the German early romanticism is is quite important. But still, I think you're you're right because it's. Um, but maybe it's it's not even a, a problem of um, well missing translations or international reception. I think also for German uh, students, it's um, it's quite common to come across these writers only at university. So it's not uh, it's 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 not being taught in uh, secondary schools uh, and. It's not very popular um, when it comes to like selling selling books. So compared yeah. to an author like E.T.R. Hoffmann, who's still very popular in Germany, but also outside Germany, um, these guys Schlegel, Novalis, and so on, they are. Well, I, I think it's uh, well, it's, it's it's not actually a secret, but it's not very popular. Not, not even in Germany. We next turned our attention to a very specific work of early German Romanticism known as the Athenium Project. Professor Willer explained to me a bit more about this project, which I briefly touched upon in episode zero. The Athenium was a literary journal published in Berlin between 1798 and 1800. It was published biannually, so there were only six editions in all. Friedrich Schlegel and his brother Wilhelm were the founders of this journal. In the second edition of the Athenaeum, Friedrich Schlegel and his brother published hundreds of aphorisms and fragments on philosophy, poetry, art, and existence itself. These aphorisms were quite different than what German philosophy, particularly the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, had been used to. The aphorisms were paradoxical, witty, and chaotic. They flouted logic and attempted no grand philosophical system. With this edition of the Athenaeum, these two youngsters from northeastern Germany provoked and rebelled against the orderly philosophical system which had reigned hitherto. It was with this journal that the Schlegels declared that the most complete work of art is a fragment and that one can only be eternal if one is always in a state of becoming. But how serious and lofty were the goals of this project? Were they trying to write a new Bible? Did they think that eternity could be created through literature and poetry itself? So as for religious aspects or topics, maybe it's interesting that they talked in that very same era, a lot about Bible, <clears throat> about writing a Bible. <clears throat> so not about just a Bible as tradition, but also Bible as something like, well, maybe <clears throat> the, the aim of the Romantic project. So that should be a Bible. But then, of course, what does it mean to, to write a new Bible? Yeah, so that's very bold again, of course. And... Uh, also, maybe another important idea when it comes to similarities with religion or religious structures and thinking is uh, eternity. Yeah. And eternity in the way of 
never-ending uh, processuality, never-ending progress, but maybe not progress as we uh, tend to think it, like going upward and um, more technical development, uh, but yeah, in fact, uh, thinking progressively uh, in a way that that's that's not supposed to end and i think that's um that's what that's what what uh, may come to mind when when they when they speak about something eternal something that goes on eternally In one of the most famous aphorisms from the Athenaeum, Schlegel compared the fragment to a porcupine. Or was it a hedgehog? You are listening to The Shrift, Interview Zero with Professor Stefan Villa, Torah. The Romantics celebrated fragment the fragment, which is an incomplete text. Um, and can you explain like why they saw that as so special? And I have actually a we can use maybe two hundred six. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll I can I'll read it out loud if, mm-hmm. if that's all right. Yeah. Um, a fragment like a miniature work of art has to be entirely isolated from the surrounding world and be complete in itself like a porcupine. Do you have it? Mm-hmm. So, um... A porcupine? Do you know uh, eagle, uh, eagle. Oh, okay. I thought yeah. it was a hedgehog. Oh, a hedgehog, yeah. Anyway, yeah. But I think it's similar. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't even know exactly the difference between porcupine and hedgehog. Good. <clears throat> But can you explain what's what's going on here with what was it about the fragment that they saw they saw so much potential in? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think that's yeah that's that's one of the <laughs> very funny and also famous fragments mm-hmm. because it's so short. One of the shortest. Just uh, two lines. Um, and it's very strange, I think. Um, so to, to combine fragment and work of art, uh, so not fragment as a piece of work of art, but uh, fragment like a miniature work of art. So... Um, the, the fragment is, is the micro version of a work of art, or it's a very delicate and small work of art. And of course, you can somehow take this, you can understand that. And also maybe the idea of having it isolated from the surrounding world, um, autonomous, if you will, also complete in itself, but then, like a porcupine, that's uh, so weird and so strange because uh, no one back then, and I 
also think no one today would actually uh, compare a work of art complete in itself, isolated from the surrounding world to a uh, world to a porcupine because a porcupine is neither a work of art nor something that actually resembles a work of art but here it's uh, supposed to resemble this work of art in the specific shape of a fragment so um, it's um, of course complete in itself but it's uh, it's it's dangerous uh, from the outside at least if you um, if you don't treat it right maybe so if you uh, if you if you grasp the fragment mm. uh, too roughly then the stings is it called stings the um i don't know uh, po- um i don't know points or yeah yeah so you will get hurt <laughs> uh, interesting yes i always thought it had to do well first i think we also should just point out that even as you read this today, it's very striking to have a porcupine juxtaposed with like work of art. It's yes, a total clash, and it's—I think it's humorous also. Yes, and it's it's provocative. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, I thought it had to do with the fact that the hedgehog or the porcupine is also. Um, never really never takes a final shape it's always sort of expanding contracting mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like sometimes it has the points out and sometimes in mm-hmm. and um i thought that has to do with their theory of the fragment that it's it's never in a fixed state like it's never um ending or beginning it's sort of going in circle is there yes yeah, maybe I wouldn't. Um, I wouldn't say that about the fragment as such. Okay. But about the idea of romantic poetry, definitely, what uh-huh. you just said. So it's uh, it's it doesn't have a it doesn't have a fixed shape. It's not classical. Um, it's not perfect or perfected or completed, but it's uh, in in a continuous uh, movement or development. Um, and this is why this may be so 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 particularly strange because the fragment is um, the epitome maybe of romantic poetry, but here it's um, the the emphasis lies on on completeness um, on something that stands for itself or or has a a, a very specific place. In within the surrounding world or isolated from it, so something that's that's not in communication with the world. Um, but it's complete, like a porcupine. Yes. So how is why yeah not not complete like a, a statue, like, but right yes or like a yeah yeah like a mm-hmm, mm-hmm. okay lion yeah. or something. I'm mm-hmm. yes, like yes, a I, turtle. I see, I see what you mean. Yeah. Well, turtles actually are also changing. During the Jewish holiday of Simchat Torah, 
the Torah both ends and begins. As soon as Moshe dies on Mount Nebo, he is, in a sense, reborn when Hashem creates the universe in Bereshit. Does this circularity of the Torah make it eternal? Is Moses, in never reaching the promised land, always in a state of becoming? I asked Professor Villa whether the Torah, in its circularity, might be early romantic in the Schlegelian sense. In my previous episode, I talked about how um, the Torah is unusual as a book because it, first of all, we finish reading it and then immediately start from the beginning. So it ends with Moshe's death and then a few days later we start over again. So there's a certain circularity to Mm -hmm. how we read it. Um, Also, there's a sense of Moses, like unfinished business, so to speak. He never gets to his goal. Mm-hmm. He's sort of always on the way there. I mean, he does die, so like there is an end to his story. But um, there's not. There's a certain yeah things left unfinished. Yeah, like we don't know where his grave is, or well, no one knows. Yeah, also no one knows where his grave is. That's true. Mm-hmm. And even one other thing I'll mention, which comes from the, the Kabbalah, is that the Torah begins with the letter Bet, which is the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The first letter is Aleph. Um, it's a Bereshit, is the first word. And there's a sense that like the beginning of the, the first letter is like somewhere else, right? It, the Torah begins after the beginning, mm-hmm. after this first letter. Mm-hmm. So I always saw this kind of a certain shiftiness in, in the Torah, in this kind of, it's not this neat and tidy A to Z story, but it's like circular and also, I don't want to say fragmentary, but kind of, um, yeah, in motion. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's in motion because of its sort of incompleteness so to speak. Is there... So... Yeah, I mean, do you see any connection there with with German Romanticism? Like, would Schlegel... What would Schlegel say about this? (laughs) Yeah. Or... Maybe I don't... Yeah, I, I, I... I, maybe I would not say that there is a similarity or that there is an analogy between uh, the two, between the scripture and or the, the Torah and uh, German Romanticism or early Romanticism. For, yeah. But I do think it makes sense to use one as... Uh, a tool, if I may say so, to uh, to somehow operate on the other, maybe in both directions, but um, sure. certainly um, using early romantic thought in order to make um, 
these motions um, visible in in the yeah in the traditional texts in the sacred texts and in the way that mm, that things are opening up there and I completely agree that uh, the the end of uh, Deuteronomy is that, that there is something opening up in a um, well dramatic and and also a bit uncanny way. To understand what Schlegel meant by the eternity of becoming, we read from fragment 116 on the eternality of romantic poetry. Other kinds of poetry are finished and are now capable of being fully analyzed. The romantic kind of poetry is still in the state of becoming. That in fact is its real essence, that it should forever be becoming and never be perfected. It can be exhausted by no theory, and only a divinatory criticism would dare try to characterize its ideal. It alone is infinite, just as it alone is free. So, um, this becoming mm -hmm. in the poet. So, I thought the Torah has this element of this kind of eternal becoming because it's, like I said, it's kind of always ending and finishing simultaneously. Mm -hmm. um, sounds like you said that's maybe not exactly what Schlegel had in mind. So could you maybe just explain more why, what the Torah doesn't have that Schlegel's ideal does have? And like maybe mm -hmm. some examples of what a perfect, an example of this type of poetry for Schlegel. Like, what is it? <laughs> Do these poems exist? <laughs> you know? Yes. Where are they? <laughs> yeah. The best examples of the eternality of the fragment come from the novels written by the Romantics themselves. These writers often wrote stories which were purposely inconclusive or which suggested endless striving. For example, the romantic writer Novalis, originally named Georg Philipp Friedrich von Hardenberg, wrote a novel entitled Heinrich von Uferdingen. In this novel, the protagonist Heinrich quests after an elusive blue flower. While he may never arrive at his goal, he, perhaps like Moses, is depicted as achieving a kind of eternity through striving itself. With the novels, it's different. The, uh, the, the Friedrich Schlegel's novel, Lucinde, that I already mentioned, is, is, is certainly fragmentary in, in the way that it's, it contains only a, only a third of it is, is, a, is a decent uh, narrative, uh, the, the story of a young man. Um, the rest, the other two thirds, the first and the third, are collections of, of short prose, um, kind of, of lyrical short prose. And when you read it, you say, what is this? Are these probably in the logic of this uh, narrative? It's 
it's texts written by the protagonists or his imaginations. But uh, as a reader, you, you just, it's, it's just presented to you more or less like, like that. And you have to take it or leave it. And it's supposed to be a first volume of a two-volume book, and that's also very characteristic. Which book is this? I, I didn't... It's called Lucinda. Oh, Lucinda, yeah. Novel. Sure. And also Novalis, his famous, uh, also in that era, famous novel, Heinrich von Ofterdingen. Mm -hmm. We only have the first part because he died very, very young, Novalis, this writer. So also a fragment, but in another way. And that's about kind of this quest for the, the blue... Um, the blue flower. The blue flower yes. that never arrives at the flower. Yes, exactly. And this... And the, the, the plan was fulfillment, perfection, but could not be achieved because the author died. But Friedrich Schlegel did not die, but he probably just didn't feel like finishing his novel. Uh, so it's it's also this this um, yeah the the way of of uh, following a project for some time and then leaving it. Mm. Something uh, incidentally that Goethe. So that would be a fragment. Would that be, would be uh, a fragment. Uh, yes. Lucinda would be an example. Of yes. That sort of doesn't. Ends abruptly. A novel ends in two parts, but we only have part one. Right. Yeah. And obviously, um, the uh, Novalis novel, uh, Heinrich von Offerdingen, mm -hmm. where questing after this blue flower but never getting there. Mm -hmm. These are examples. Just I just want to be clear. These are would would fit this. This would be uh, in in the yeah contemporary okay. examples okay, for great. for fragments. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Great. Okay. Yeah, thanks for asking. That's that's the better examples, actually. Yeah, the ones that they themselves wrote. Exactly. And and you wanted to say about Goethe because I was going to ask about Faust. Yes, I, I was I was going to say that Goethe was also someone who um, who was able to 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 leave something at rest, to write a first part, and then say, well, there's going to be um, a, a continuation. But he then wrote these second parts. <laughs> right, so he wrote Faust part one. Yes, and decades and later, part two. Right, so for <laughs> at least 20 years, there was only Faust part one and no Faust yes, part two. Yes, yes. And before Faust one, there was like pre and pre-Faust pre versions. And that so, was intentional on Goethe to call it, to, to make, he wanted to make it fragmentary in the romantic sense or make it kind of this becoming yes i yes i i think it was really uh, a, a trend of that time and maybe it's also something that is um more or less true for for poetic or artistic production um in general that completion is just um a way of, of looking at something, but for the people who actually are producing it, maybe the the the, the part of, of complete the, the completeness is, is not what makes it interesting, but to leave something open in order to maybe come back to it later. And Schlegel didn't, but Goethe did. He was someone who was yeah, he, he, he really he, he had the ability and the long life um, 
to uh, to come back to to projects later and to make sense of this of, of, of this kind of, of these continuations. Okay, so um, I guess what I'm wondering is Schlegel put a lot of hopes or uh, expectations in this romantic poetry that it could achieve, as I understand it, things that classical poetry couldn't achieve. And would you say it had, it wanted to achieve kind of divine goals um, or mm -hmm. transcendental goals? Yeah. Or was that not its purpose? In order to answer this question, Professor Villa and I turn to the romantic concept of wits. Wits is a word which sounds an awful lot like the English word witty. And this is no coincidence. How much transcendental power does wits have? The concept of Wits and of also I think of wit in the English uh, tradition um, since um, late 17th century has to do with um, bringing together things that are quite far apart from each other and to make visible that they are similar in a surprising kind of way. That's why very often uh, wit is being compared to metaphor, because that's what metaphor does, creates uh, a surprising likeness. Um, and wit, I would also say, you said earlier, means joke. And mm -hmm. a joke is usually funny because it, mm -hmm. this kind of moment of laughter arises out of these, yes. this strange combination. It could be a pun mm -hmm. or a witty remark. Yes, right? yes. And there's also this moment of, aha moment mm -hmm. with a joke. Oh, like, yeah. and that's where you laugh. Mm -hmm. And I think it goes back to the original meaning of bits. Yeah. The Torah is read in a circle each year. When we begin the Torah again, are we just back at the beginning, back at square one? Or have we moved upward? Does the Torah have bits? Or put another way, must the Torah have wits? We begin it as soon as it ends. Um, you could look at that maybe as fragmentary or not. Mm -hmm. But there's a sense in which one way to say that would be, okay, we're just reading the same thing again. It's just endless repetition. Mm -hmm. um, or you could find a synthesis in this circularity, mm -hmm. right? So circularity implies a certain, a certain um, meaninglessness, like you're right back where you started. What's the point, right? Um, a certain almost nihilism, maybe. Um, 
but you could also see in that circularity a synthesis where something more is created out of the repetition mm-hmm. or out of the yeah and i'm wondering if i is vitz is vitz this something more the synthesis mm-hmm. could could there be is vitz like almost has like a godlike property to it in that sense because the torah if 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 we're just reading it in a circle every year it is a bit it doesn't have any sort of it feels a bit repetitive and mm-hmm. but because we believe in in god behind it that creates a certain um the rep- repetition has a certain magical quality to it or a yeah. certain is that what is is vitz in that mm-hmm. sphere mm-hmm. is can vitz compete with god so to mm-hmm. speak or, yeah, yes, probably. Because um, they does, speak such yeah. with such praise and adulation of Vitz. Yes. And I'm wondering why. Yeah. I'm just uh, thinking of something that maybe goes in the opposite direction, but then again, probably it doesn't. Because of um, an Italian um, theoretician, Emanuele. Tesauro in the early 17th century said that uh, the, 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 the mad people are very good in creating metaphors and similes, and that they are actually the, the witty mm-hmm. persons because they bring together things that the normal people would not bring together. And he also says that this is creative in the emphatic um, sense of the word because they the, the mad people can create something out of nothing of course this is a very divine thing to do um, which then means that well this kind of perspective is is not for the normal people and this kind of of productiveness is, is not for the normal people but uh, yes maybe for the for, for those that are seen as, as mad by the, the majority. And maybe uh, when you see it like this, they could, yeah, they, they, they could uh, attain a certain godlike creativity by being so uncannily witty. Mm-hmm. Mm. Still, I think. What you mention about rereading the Torah, I find it very interesting in its own rights. And um, I'm not sure if I would term this kind of, of reading um, magical or witty. Or synthetic. Yeah, because um, I think what, what happens in, in repetition and I think this is really about repetition. And of course, repetition can be uncanny. Eh? You, you uh, see something again, say, well, I just saw it before. I just, I just heard this last year. Here it is again. Uh, that's uncanny in the, in the Freudian sense, right? You forgot it and then it pops up again and that's the uncanny. Um, but it's, it's also more optimistically and I think also a little more realistically 
um, something like a spiral movement, right? So you, uh, you've been there before, but you went through all five books of the Torah, and then you come to the beginning again, but you've been uh, there on the mountain with Moses, uh, and then you come back to the beginning, which is, as you so uh, clearly pointed out, not the beginning, but something after the beginning. Uh, and this makes perfect sense, since the beginning is something you always come back to. It's not the beginning itself, right? So um, I don't know um, if anyone can really remember hearing the story of the creation of the world and of the paradise for the first time. Most likely it's a story that you've already, always already heard. Mm. Uh, and of course, that's why it's so so intriguing and the idea of going back to paradise is uh, again quite realistic when it comes to reading this uh, this this beginning it's, it's always a well, rereading yeah and i really like what you said about spiral because i think that the circularity becomes a it's not just a circle it's a upward spiral where you're moving in a circle, yes, but you're also getting closer to God and mm -hmm. elevating yourself. And I think that's what Judaism believes, is that even though every year we're reading the same thing again, we're getting closer to to God or to, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of Jews would say to the Messiah coming. Mm -hmm. But it can't just be a circle because a circle is... It has to have an upward spiraling circle for it to have um, importance or meaning. And I, yeah. I guess what I'm asking is, I thought I was, I thought that this is what makes the circularity that the Romantics speak of mm -hmm. an upward spiral. Yeah. Um, as opposed to just. Yeah, I see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and that this, yeah. Is that is that true, or am yeah. I over am I over uh, estimating this? No, I think you're actually applying it to um, to another maybe register of, of thought and to another set of, of of texts and traditions. So, I think it's it's possible and probably also um, helpful to to make this application so for me as as I have seen it or still I'm, I'm still like in, a, in another um, more in the like aesthetic theory register where Witz is more synchronic you know it's about bringing two things together in the here and now and this is where, uh, where it ignites or where it flashes. Sure. Yeah. So mm -hmm. and and the idea of of um, introducing this momentary temporality in the long spiraling temporality of tradition is. As I say, it's, I, I think it makes sense, but I have to think about it a, a little longer in, in order to, to come to terms with these two kinds of temporalities. 
Yeah, I mean, I had never... I sort of assumed that the fragment in that it never begins and never ends, it's that what makes that special yeah. is the vits. But I actually never saw that specifically written somewhere. Yeah. So maybe I'm just assuming something that's not there. But I can't... Otherwise, to me, it just seems to be a... Just a, a circle without anything special. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like you could also... I mean, with Heinrich von Uffendingen and chasing the blue flower, you could look at it, okay, it's just this endless chase into of meaninglessness, just mm -hmm. on the treadmill, just going nowhere. That is very negative mm -hmm. and very nihilistic but if you add vits to it or add some kind of transcendence or some, then it's suddenly extremely meaningful mm -hmm. but I never actually I just assume that mm. I never yeah yeah it, that, at least this makes me uh, think of one of the I think most spectacular uh, scenes in this very novel um, where what is it It's one of the many dreams in this novel um, where the protagonist, Heinrich, dreams um, of his young beloved um, whom he just met, but they already know that they are uh, determined for each other for eternity. And then he dreams that she dies. And she dies um, sitting in a, in a rowboat on a river and then... All of a sudden, there's uh, like a torrent, and she drowns. And he follows her, diving, swimming, running, and we don't really know where we are and which kind of speciality. Um, at least somehow he he follows her, uh, panicking, and then um, he feels that someone touches him on his shoulder from the back and he turns around and there she is um, and she says where are we where's the river and then she points upwards and said it's it's above us so the whole setting has turned spatially and and and, uh, and and temporally so what was before him is behind him what has been below him or surrounding him is is above him and uh, this is Uh, certainly this kind of uh, a spiral movement where things uh, happen again and again and uh, one of the very famous lines in this novel where are we going we are always going home <laughs> so uh, that's uncanny too yeah or or it's it's very uh, hopeful and optimistic so uh, but I think it, it really has to do with this uh, spiraling movement tried to connect to very different the Torah and and early German Romanticism especially the Athenian project and fragment and um, I'm sort of hoping or wondering if these two 
one text coming out of obviously the ancient uh, Middle Eastern world and beyond, and then one is coming from from Germany and you know early early nineteenth late eighteenth early nineteenth century. Um, do you can you do you see any I guess um, from what you know about German Romanticism? Why would such similarities exist? I mean, I, what's the underlying kind of? Is it? Yeah. What? What's? Uh, mm -hmm. Historically, um, the similarities I think come from the fact that uh, whoever um, writes in the well european tradition in the in the broadest sense is uh, necessarily part of this tradition of of sacred texts right so everyone uh, writes under the 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 auspices of of the torah of the hebrew bible and of the uh, of the new testament uh, also, but uh, these are the, the stories that everyone um, lives on, you know, the traditions, the, 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 tradi the, the thought traditions. Not just the classical antiquity, um, but also the, um, the, the Jewish uh, religious tradition. So that would be the historical part, I would say, of, of, uh, of answering this. And the, the other part, I think really has to do with how we read all of this, how we um, how we juxtapose traditions or create re-entries of traditions, and how we um, decide to to use a certain a, a certain way of thinking um, as as yeah, maybe really a, a tool um, for for something else, and and try if it somehow fits or what happens when we um, create a yeah a, a, a witty juxtaposition of wit theory and and reading uh, reading uh, Deuteronomy. So I think these both parts somehow um, have to be connected because at least as someone who, who teaches and uh, still studies literary history, I would not um, neglect the historical part in order to, um, to, to create a theoretical innovation but also the other way around. So only to follow the, the lines of um, history should not uh, hinder you from uh, creating uh, these new juxtapositions. So that's maybe a bit abstract and theoretical way of answering this question, but uh, I think it's, it's, it, it's, it's both. It sounds like maybe in our conversation today, we, in connecting these two 
different concepts, we created our own vids <laughs> in this, uh, bringing together these, these two different worlds. Yeah. Anyway, I was, uh, that was Professor uh, Stefan Willer of Humboldt University. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your insights with us. Thank you. That was interview zero of The Shrift. Afterwards, I realized I should not have ended the discussion so definitively. It might have been more witty to conclude the conversation in mid-sentence. I think that would have pleased Schlegel very much because, well, 